Last week we started, oh gosh, we've been in uh, the passion of the Christ for a while now in John's Gospel. The last part, the last 12 chapters, the last 13 chapters of John's Gospel all take place in the last 12 or 20, 24 hours of his life. Uh, and Jesus being brought before Pontius Pilate is, is, a, is such a big section, you really have to break it in two different parts. So last week we saw the very beginning of it, where Jesus had been brought before Pontius Pilate by the chief priests of the religious elite of the Jewish nation, and now we're going to see uh, the majority the majority of that encounter where Pontius Pilate appears before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I could ask you to please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. We believe that God speaks to us through his word when, when it is read and when it is preached. And so we stand out of respect for God speaking to us. I am just the reader. And so... Uh, Let's listen intently together to the word of the Lord. This is uh, John chapter 19, verse 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robes. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. For everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, as we just sang, ashamed to hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. 
we too hear our own voices in the shouts to crucify our Lord in so many different ways, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show us how we may be hostile to truth. We, show, we pray that you would show us how we may be trying to uh, have a pretended neutrality to truth. And Lord, above all, we pray that you would show us that Jesus is above all of that and that he is the king of heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead, and our only hope in life and death. (laughs) And we pray you would show us that today, Lord, as you give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is another one of those passages that's so frustrating because to really preach this whole thing, it would be another, it would be a good hour and 15 minute sermon. (laughs) And so we already cut it in half. uh, And uh, so there's so much, as a pastor, I get frustrated. There's so much I would like to talk about and bring out, but we have to talk about the most important things that are happening in the passage and, and, and when we look at the, the whole of John's gospel, John's gospel, John tells us clear as day what his whole intention is for writing this gospel. And in, in chapter 20, verse 30, John says that the reason he's written his gospel is so that, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so Jesus, or John says, the whole reason I've written this, this, this account, the whole reason I've written this story of Jesus is to show you, to prove to you that he is who he said he was so that you might have life in his name, so that you might believe that he is the Christ and have life in his name. And as part of that, as part of that project of John trying to show us what belief is, he also gives us the, the antithesis of faith in all these different examples. And we've been seeing it through the whole gospel, mainly the chief priests have been shown that way. They're showing, he's going to show them again Today, the hostility towards Jesus, the unbelief of hostility towards Jesus, that's obvious in the high priest. But there's a more subtle form of unbelief that we're going to see in Pilate. Where Pilate, his unbelief looks like neutrality. He's trying to be reasonable and neutral. He won't. Uh, he doesn't. He won't. He doesn't want to side with the chief priests. He doesn't want to agree with them. But he also is unwilling to side with Jesus. And we're going to see today, John's going to show us where that neutrality and eventually leads us or leads Pilate and therefore leads anyone who attempts a neutrality with cosmic, universal, religious, spiritual truth. Because Jesus has made super specific claims about who he is and about what he's come to do And he absolutely demands a decision from us. And he's going to demand a decision from Pilate. We're going to see that happen today. So the the big idea, the thesis of this whole section is this. That since neither hostility nor neutrality can dethrone Jesus, the only rational response is faith. Big idea. One more time. Since neither hostility nor neutrality can dethrone Jesus, the only rational response 
is faith. So let's look at that one little section at a time. First one is hostility cannot dethrone Jesus. Look at verse 19, 1 through 6a. And then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and he struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Now this, is, this is the culmination of all the hostility of the religious elite of Jerusalem towards Jesus. They've been, they've been gunning for this all the way really since chapter 5 of John's gospel, certainly since chapter 10 and 11, they have they made the decision that they want Jesus killed. They want Jesus killed in a certain way. And this is the culmination of all of their hostility against Jesus when they have got him before the Roman governor, the man who has the power to do what they want, and they are crying out, crucify, crucify, right? So it's worth our time to stop for a minute here and remember who these guys are. These guys are theologians, they have memorized the Old Testament. They know, the, they know the, the prophets and the scriptures and the prophecies of the coming Messiah better than anybody. They know them inside and out. They know Isaiah. They know Zechariah. They know all of the prophets by heart. And they are witnesses to Jesus' preaching, claiming that he is fulfilling these prophecies, and they're witnesses to supernatural miracles that are verifying that what Jesus is saying about himself is true, and they are men who are desperately waiting for the hope of Israel, which is the coming of the Messiah, the king who's going to save them, and they're the same guys that are screaming their heads off to Pilate to kill God's anointed Messiah. How does that happen? How is that even possible? To us, this is a cultural thing. For us, culturally, this is incredible to us because everybody, basically we say, at some point, reason has to kick in here. Reason has to kick in at some point and tell these guys, wait a minute, what you know about Jesus to be true matches the scriptures and so there's a big disconnect of intelligence, of reason, of rational thought, and we just, we, we believe that at some point, reason has to kick in and save the day. And the reality is it doesn't, and we're, in, we're in shocked by that. Why isn't reason kicking in and auto-correcting the error? And the short answer is, the short answer is this, that ever since every one of us was a little tiny baby in our Mother's wombs. Our fathers used to lean down into our mother's pregnant bellies and would say something like this. Little Johnny, little Susie, you have the power of reason. And with the power of reason, you are able to perfectly control your will to desire the good. That is the American air we breathe, that reason controls will, and will then decides 
based on reason, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's evil. But the reality is, the biblical reality, that is the absolute opposite. And we see it happening in the lives of these guys, and we see it happening in the lives of our own selves. The reality is that we have desire, strong desire. The strong desire then marshals the will, and the will becomes the slave of desire and then the mind is, is, is the tool which with we make up reasons and excuses to justify what the desire wants. So we've been trained since we were babies that the, the, higher, the order is, is, is the mind is controlled by will, will is, is controlled by reason. The reality is, from my own experience, is that desire controls will, will controls mind. And mind is the apparatus through which we, we justify what we want. Now, be honest with yourselves. Is that true? In your own lives? Can you count, can you count a, a hundred things? Can you count to ten things where you've said there was something you wanted so bad and then you manufactured all these reasons why it was a good thing and true and then you got it and it was an absolute train wreck and you were like, why was I... Why was I thinking that? We know this from our own experience that that's true. What we want, what we desire, we go and get. And then we justify it after the fact. And so how does this happen? How is it that these guys know the Old Testament inside out? They know the prophets inside out. They've seen the supernatural miracles. They have everything they need to know that Jesus is who he said he's going to be. They're theologians of the highest order, and yet they're calling to kill him. Why? Because as they're reading through the Bible, they're interpreting it not according to what it actually said, but in real time, they're misinterpreting it to say what they want it to say because what they really want is political power, is social power, is to stay on top. I mean, look what they say when when push comes to shove at the very end of the story. What do they say? They say, we have no king but Caesar, Excuse me? The whole, the whole Old Testament is the story about how God is the king of Israel. These are the same guys that are desperately hoping for the consolation of Israel. They are desperately hoping for the Davidic king to show up on the scene and rescue them. And yet when push comes to shove, when they need their agenda passed, when they need this guy who threatens them taken out, they actually speak truth. What they say is, we are hoping for the king of Israel. But what they do is, we have no king but Caesar. What they actually do, what they actually say, is a better indicator of what they really believe than what they say. And here's the thing. They're clueless to it. They're clue- they don't know this is happening. They don't seem to have any conscious awareness that they are misinterpreting the Bible according to their desire and their will. And this is, there's a long history of this in the Old Testament. It's kind of the story of this happening. Uh, I mean, all the way from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve know the covenant of God. They know the law. They know that God is good. But they what? They desire, they get presented the opportunity to possibly be like God and their desire for that overrides what they know and they believe that instead Bad things happen. In the Old Testament, is the Old Testament 
Israel, when, when Israel was getting ready to go into, into exile, when they were, the nation was about to be kicked out of the promised land, the prophets of Israel were prophesying, everything's going to be good, nothing bad's going to happen. Because they were the same thing. They didn't want the reality of what they were seeing to be true. They were interpreting the Bible according to what they wanted to believe. And so God would send men like Jeremiah to say the truth. The prophets of Israel are lying to you. Uh, Jonah. Jonah's a story about Jonah dis- disregarding everything he knows about what God has said to him in order to run the other way and do what he wants to do because the Ninevites are nasty. The Ninevites are evil, awful people, the enemies of his people, and he hates them, and he can't, he can't stand the thought of God rescuing these foreigners and offering them grace, and so he runs the other way. In the New Testament, Peter does the same thing. Peter knows, Peter had a vision from God. With a, a sheet comes down with all these animals, and God says, nothing is unclean that I have called clean, including the Gentiles. He sends him to the Gentiles' houses, Cornelius, the centurion says these men are clean, that they become, they, they get the Holy Spirit, they're saved, they go, wow, God even is including the Gentiles into the covenant. And then he goes to Antioch and, and when, God, when the Jews come from Jerusalem, he won't sit with the Gentiles and eat with anymore because the Gentiles are dirty, the Gentiles are dogs. And he, doesn't, as a Jew, doesn't want to have anything to do with those gross Gentiles, you people. You Gentile dogs. And it doesn't stop there. I wish it stopped with the closing of the New Testament canon, but it keeps on going. Listen here, this is a good quote. This is a quote from R.L. Dabney, one of the founders of, uh, one of the fathers of Southern American Presbyterianism. This is what R.L. Dabney says, who is otherwise a good theologian, a good Reformed theologian, R.L. R. L. Dabney says this, or said this. He said, the black race is an alien one on our soil and nothing except his amalgamation with ours, the joining of the black and the white races together, or his subordination to ours can prevent the rise that, in, that uh, in, instinctive apathy of race, which history shows, always arises between opposite races in proximity. In other words, he says, there's only two options when two races come in proximity. Either they come joined together or uh, one subjugates the other. And he goes on to say, the offspring of an amalgamation must be a hybrid race incapable of the career of civilization and glory as an independent race. And this apparently is the destiny which our conquerors have in view. If indeed they can mix the blood of the heroes of the white race with this vile stream from the fens of Africa, then they will never again have occasion to tremble before the righteousness resistance of Virginia freemen. But will have a race supple and vile enough to fill that position of political subjugation which they desire to fix on the South. That sound, I read that, that almost sounds like something you could hear from a bullhorn in Charlottesville today. But to even it out, here's another quote. See if you can guess who said this. I am not now, here's another different guy. I am not now nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social or political equality of the white and black races. I am not now nor ever have been in favor 
of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor of intermarriages with white people. There is a physical difference between the white and black races which will forever forbid the two races living together on social or political equality. There must be a position of superior and inferior, and I am in favor of assigning the superior position to the white man. Now, which Bible-believing, God-fearing American hero said that? Honest Abe Lincoln. Isn't that amazing? We talked about a little while ago that we need heroes. He was a moderate northerner. There's the southerner and there's the norther. And the point I'm trying to make uh, is that these men were Bible-believing, God-fearing men who were blinded to the fact of what the Bible was saying to them because of what their desire was, what they wanted it to be. And this still happens today, even in our churches now, by the wholesale denials by otherwise thoughtful white Christians that there is not still a deeply ingrained system of power that favors white people. That's just true. Now, here's the, here's the reality. The reality is we do this in a thousand different ways. There's a hundred different ways that we misinterpret the Bible to make it say what we want. We do this with sex all the time, right? Sex is a hot issue. We, when, we, when the Bible speaks to us about sexuality, whenever it says something about sexuality that we don't like, we reinterpret it to say what we want it to say. And so there's countless, there's, there's a whole population of evangelical Christians who are out there living with their boyfriends or girlfriends saying that what really matters is that God just wants us to love one another. And if I love my, if I love my girlfriend, then that makes it okay. Completely missing misinterpreting the Bible to make it say what we want it to say. And then once we break that barrier, once love is really, or once relationships and love is really about just that we love the other person, then it opens the dam to loving whoever you want, and so on and so forth. And I was going to, today, I was, this is what I was going to talk about, how we misinterpret what the Bible says about sexuality when it contradicts us about what we want, about what we like, when it contradicts us about things about money or status. Uh, But you know, the thing is, is it also, it says the same thing, and we misinterpret it in the same way about race. And it, and it takes something like what's happening in Charlottesville to even bring it to our attention. Uh, and that's because the reason is, um, the reason we don't ever talk about this, but we talk about sex, we'll talk about money, we'll talk about anger, we'll talk about hatred, we'll talk about conflict, we'll talk about all these different sins in the church, but as a white church, we never talk about racism is because it's just super easy for us to ignore. It doesn't affect us. We are careless about it. We, are, uh, we, we, we can easily ignore the reality because it doesn't hit us, and that, that in itself is really the heart of racism in America today. But we can't ignore it. Listen. Bible says this. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak 
and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 82. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And then we try to justify ourselves by saying, well, who is my neighbor? Don't we do that within our church? And Revelation says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so we have a, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility not to just talk about these things but to actively pursue justice for the sake of our brothers and sisters who are oppressed that's not the gospel but it is a ramification of the gospel it is an outworking of the gospel we have to be conscious of this and we have to work towards betterment of it instead of getting offended or angry or hostile. Because hostility to truth, whether active or passive, cannot change the truth. It only blinds us to the truth and it eventually judges us by it. Which brings us to the second point. Second point, neutrality cannot dethrone Jesus. First, hostility cannot dethrone Jesus. Second, Neutrality cannot dethrone Jesus. At verse 16, uh, verse 19, 6b through 13. And so Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, But we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, and Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Pilate, we see Pilate through this whole trial is trying to stay neutral. He doesn't want to side with the Jews, but he's not willing to come out and side with Jesus. And he tries all these ploys to get Jesus released without ever actually coming and, and identifying with him. And he knows, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but his problem is, is that the whole world seems to be pressing in on him to do the opposite of what he knows is right. And the Jews, they try three attacks. There's three presses by the chief priests on Pilate. The first is a political charge. They bring him to Pilate saying, this man is a political insurrectionist. 
And Pilate's reaction, his response to that is he tries compromise. He takes Jesus, he beats him, mocks him, humiliates him, and then he brings him out to display him, thinking that they will see this man could not possibly, this poor man could not possibly be a king, therefore your charge is baseless. And so the Jews, then they switch gears, and they actually pop with the real objection. They say, it's a religious charge. The real reason is that this man is pretending to be the son of God, and Pilate's reaction is panic and fear. It says, Pilate then was even more afraid, and he goes right back to Jesus. First question is, where are you from? (laughs) That's not where are you from, homie. That's Where are you from? Are you from the supernatural realm? Are you from, where are you from? To Pilate, a superstitious Roman, uh, the idea of a son of the gods, isn't that, it's not a far stretch for him to believe that they may be dealing with some sort of divine human entity. uh, And he would want nothing to do with that. And so then after Jesus won't respond to him, what it is, he pops uh, the fateful question to Jesus when he says, you know I have power to free you, I have power to crucify you. Pontius Pilate is admitting by his own testimony before Jesus that he's going to have to make a decision. He's going to have to make a decision one way or another. What's he going to do? And so he goes back out, uh, and really the way the Greek is the grammar states he goes back out and makes repeated attempts to free Jesus. He doubles down in his efforts to try to release Jesus. And the Jews then double down on their efforts. Third attack, a political threat. And they say to Pontius Pilate, if you release him, that you are not a friend of Caesar. Friend of Caesar is a technical term. It was a, it was a, uh, uh, a title associated with people who had the favor of Caesar and the support of Caesar. And if that were to be taken away, if he were to lose that, if the Jews were to go to send an embassy to Rome, say Pontius Pilate has infracted our own religious rules, he has allowed a political insurrectionist to go free, and he is not upholding or protecting the rights of Caesar, and he lost that privilege, it would mean political ruin, it would mean personal disgrace, it would mean it would mean total personal loss for Pilate. And he was in a sticky situation at this point in history. His own mentor, his own uh, patron in Rome had just been deposed by Caesar. Caesar, Tiberius Caesar himself, was a suspicious, paranoid man. And so when Pontius Pilate hears this political threat that the Jews are going to go and make charges against him, uh, to, to, to Caesar in Rome, at the end of the day, the public disgrace and the loss of power is too great a price to pay. And so Pilate attempts at neutrality have failed, and he eventually goes and sits down with the chief priests and agrees to sentence Jesus to death. So neutrality can be helpful in some things, Things are doubtful, or you're just not sure about them, or, or conflicts that don't have anything to do with us. Sometimes neutrality is a good thing. But when it comes to concrete religious claims, Jesus made specific historical claims that have been backed up by supernatural miracle and revelation. Jesus is not something we can be neutral about. 
Eventually, like it or not, everybody's got to make a choice. Pilate eventually had to make a choice, and that is the destiny of all mankind. You cannot remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. Eventually, you're going to have to say, yes, he is who he says he is, or no, I don't buy it. Now, in Christianity, we say the most responsible, the most reasonable response to Jesus is one of faith. Now, why? Why would we say that? Why do we say that the most responsible or the most reasonable response to Jesus Christ is faith? This is point three. The only, the only reasonable response to Jesus is faith. Look at verses 14 through 16. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, which is noon by the Roman calendar. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now John makes a special point to tell us that this is the day of the Passover, the, preparation, the day of preparation for the feast of the Passover. He wants us to know the time, that it's noon. The biblical authors don't give us information like that unless it's important. The Passover, the Passover is from, is from Exodus chapter 12. The Passover was when the, when the Israelites were held captive when they were under slavery in Egypt. The Lord rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and the first thing he did in that rescue before they crossed the Red Sea, before they left Egypt was, was he told all of his people to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb and to take it and slaughter that lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and on uh, the lintel, the, what do you call this, the overhead beam of the doorpost, right? Imagine like the back of somebody's head and somebody's outstretched arms, that blood pattern from that pose. And God promised that if I see, if wherever he saw this blood on the doorposts and on the, on the header of the door, when the angel of death came to Egypt to, and to kill all the firstborn of all Egypt to free his people, that the angel of death would pass over all those houses. And that by seeing the blood of the perfect lamb on the door, God would pass that house over and not bring death. They would be saved. He would pass over them. And that, that was set in Exodus 12. That, they did that that night. The Egyptians, or the, is the, the, the Israelites, they all took a lamb that was spotless, without blemish, that was perfect. They slaughtered that lamb on the day of preparation. Uh, and then they put the blood on the doorpost. That night, the angel of the Lord came over, killed all the firstborn throughout all of Egypt, but spared Israel. And that was the beginning of the Exodus, God's Passover. And then that became a feast throughout all the history of Egypt, throughout all the history of Israel for a thousand years, for a thousand years plus. Every year to commemorate that, to commemorate God's salvation, to commemorate God's rescuing them and bringing them out of slavery they would do the same thing. They would, have a day, they would have the day of preparation where they would kill the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and they would recreate and remember God's salvation. And so uh, 
The day of preparation was a busy day. Think of all the things that had to happen that day in order to get ready for the feast. There were specific foods that they had to put together. They had to put the house together in a certain way. They had to get all the unleavened bread out of the house. And most importantly, they had to inspect the lamb to make sure it was blemish, without blemish, that it was perfect. And then they had to slaughter the lamb to get it ready for the feast. Uh, you know, at first it was the fathers of households that do this, did this individually in Israel, but as Israel grew, as Israel became a nation, as the temple was constructed, as all Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, over the years Israel got bigger and bigger, and eventually by this time there was 150,000, 200,000, 250,000 Israelites that had come to Jerusalem for this feast. Each family had to have a lamb, so do the math, that's maybe 25,000 30,000 lambs that had to be slaughtered that day. And so on the day of preparation, there were so many lambs that had to be slaughtered. The priests who were in charge of this had to inspect the lambs and had to slaughter them. And they had to do it starting at about noon in order to get it all done by sunset. So you can imagine now, why is the priests are so upset? They've got things to do. They're late. They're supposed to be in the temple courtyard right next door inspecting the lambs to make sure they're without blemish and slaughtering the Passover lambs for the feast that's that night, commemorating God's Passover, commemorating God's salvation of his people Israel. So they're angry. They're upset. They got things to do. And they need Pilate to get on with it. And Pilate has scourged Jesus. He's whipped him literally within an inch of his life. He's brought Jesus out covered with the stripes of the Roman whips. He's dressed as a king in an ultra expensive royal purple robe and he's brought out. And so here Pilate again presents Jesus to the chief priests for inspection. And he says... Behold your king. And the chief priests now screaming in anger because they are being held up from their duty to inspect and slaughter the Passover lambs, shout back, away with him, crucify him. So let me spell this out for you. Why did John let us know that this was noon? Why did John let us know that this was the day of preparation? Because little did the chief priests know that they were carrying out their duty as chief priests. Little did they know that God had put into motion these wheels of prophetic history so that on this very day, they would be in Pilate's office inspecting and slaughtering the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Little did they know that they were right on time doing exactly what they had been prophesied to do from the very beginning. But Jesus knew what they were doing. And as the camera pulls back from this scene, we're left watching and seeing Jesus dressed in royal attire, having presented truth, and now presiding over this whole scene in silence as the architect of prophetic history and human history and as the judge over the whole court of humanity as both the Jews and, the Pi- and Pilate sentence themselves by rejecting the truth of Jesus 
who is the judge of the living and the dead. And so who is on trial here? Not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's primarily, this is the trial of Pontius Pilate as his neutrality gives way to hostility. It's also the trial of the Jews as their hostility against truth condemns themselves. And ultimately also, it's about us. It's the, our trial. Presented with truth, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with it? And now here, here this is why, this is why we think it's more reasonable to believe, it's more reasonable to have faith in Jesus than not. It's because you can't, you just couldn't make that story up. You couldn't make the reality of it up. Think about how hard it would have been for the Jewish nation, for anybody to manipulate prophetic history, to institute the Passover ceremony, to put together all the elements of it, the lamb, the blood, to have John the Baptist show up on the scene ahead of time and call Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to have a hundred other streams of prophecy pointing to Jesus as the Lamb who would sacrifice himself for God's people, and then to have all those chief priests there on the day of preparation, inspecting Jesus and slaughtering him with the chief priest Caiaphas pronouncing over the whole thing that it is better for one man to die for the nation than for the nation to perish. What, what would it take to manipulate that and put that all together? And that's just one, that's just one stream of prophecy from the Old Testament to the New Testament that proves that, that it proves, this is what it proves, that the source behind the Bible is supernatural intelligence, like it or not. There's no other way that this all could have happened. And what that means is that the supernatural intelligence is more reasonable to believe, whatever it says, than our own supposed rational understanding of reality. Uh, because as we've seen, um, our own reasoning is not so reasonable. <laughs> People ask the wrong question when it comes to spiritual matters. They ask, do I agree with this? And then they use their own reason to decide, is this true? Is this not true? Which that makes you absolutely the judge of all truth. But what if you're not able to really Judge so clearly. What if your reason is powering your will and your mind? What if what you really want to believe is powering those decisions? The right question to ask is, is this demonstrably true? And the prophetic record absolutely proves that Jesus is who he said he was. And if that's true, and it is, then what we are called to do is to submit our will, submit our reason, submit our lives to the truth that the Bible has revealed to us rather than trying to make God submit himself to our desire. Wouldn't that be smarter? Amen? And here's the good news. The best news of all is that we can do that in confidence because all that stuff we just talked about, Jesus being the architect of the prophetic record, Jesus being the Passover lamb, He did that willingly and voluntarily for our salvation so that we could be with him forever in heaven. And eternal life is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, 
We thank you for how it challenges us. Lord, we're all guilty in a hundred different ways of, of reading what we want to be true into the text, Lord, and it's just part of the fallen human condition, Lord, and so we're free to admit that we're lustful, we're prideful, we're arrogant, we're freely, we freely admit that sometimes we lie, we freely admit that we're not honest. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to also freely admit that we have tendencies to be racist so that we would see it and do something about it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take that knowledge and work towards uh, the blessing and the benefit of our brothers and sisters of color. Lord, we pray, um, we thank you for revealing to us that neutrality always always ends badly, Lord, because you have made specific claims. And so we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here tonight who is trying to be neutral on the question of Jesus, that you would shake that foolishness out of their heads and by the power of your spirit, that you would regenerate them so that they might believe in the beauty of Jesus and that they might be given eternal life, Lord. And Father, we thank you above all that Jesus is our Passover lamb, that he has been sacrificed for our sins, and that because of that, we have been given his righteousness We've been made adopted sons and daughters and we can look forward to an eternity of beauty and life and peace with you forever and ever. And we thank you and praise you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.